Glory to you, Lord Christ. I wonder if anyone here remembers a movie from the early 1980s called This is Spinal Tap. A few, okay. This is Spinal Tap is a mockumentary about a fictional band called Spinal Tap that's purported to be the loudest band in England. And one of my favorite scenes, the interviewer is following one of the band members named Nigel into his guitar and equipment room. As they're looking at all the guitars in there, Nigel points out an amplifier. It's a little black box with all the dials and knobs. And he proudly tells the interviewer that while ordinary amplifiers only go up to a 10, these go to an 11. So the interviewer is trying to reason this out, and he says, well, why don't you just keep the volume the same, but each dial, each number could be just a little bit louder, and then you'd be normal. You'd, it would just go up to 10. And he's like, no, these, these go to 11. It's like being able to dial it up to 10, and then one more has special significance gives you the extra push that you need to play loudly. I think of this scene a good bit whenever Jesus starts saying stuff that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me or just seems to like push the limit from a 10 to the 11. And one of these instances is this parable of the mustard seed. I want to clarify something about the parable of the mustard seed. There's another parable of the mustard seed in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the one where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It starts off really small, but then you water it, and it grows to be the biggest tree in the garden, right? This one's a little bit different. I think mustard seeds were a common metaphor in the time of Jesus. But he's saying something different here. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, and you don't, 
You could say to this mulberry bush, be uprooted and thrown into the garden, into the ocean. It follows a path. In our bulletin, we started this in Luke chapter 17, verse 5, but I want us to actually back up a little bit to verse 3. This whole thing about the mustard seed follows something else that the disciples have said and that Jesus is trying to teach them. He's talking about forgiveness. Jesus says, if another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender, and if there is repentance, you have to forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times a day again and says, I repent, you must forgive. And then the disciples say, wow, that is really hard. Increase our faith. To which Jesus said, if you only had faith the size of a mustard seed and you don't, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So it starts off with this teaching about forgiveness, which is timely because the case of Amber Geiger, the former Dallas police officer who was convicted this Tuesday of shooting a young, innocent black man named Botham Jean in his own apartment, seems to have had a lot of the country talking about the theme of forgiveness and speculating on who deserves forgiveness, what it takes to earn forgiveness, who's got the right to pronounce forgiveness, and what forgiveness ultimately means. Although this case was a tragic incident of mistaken identity and poor judgment. Geiger was found guilty of murder, possibly because her action was so horrendously irresponsible, and maybe a little bit because they were suspicious that racism played a small part in it. But the debate really rose when, after the sentencing hearing, Jean's younger brother asked the judge, would it be okay if I gave this woman a hug? And so he got up, gives her a hug that lasts about 45 seconds, and says, I forgive you. There are probably a whole lot of Christian leaders who are preaching about this incident today, applauding 18-year-old Brant Jean's act of Christian faith and forgiveness. And there are probably a whole lot of others as this debate has raised some controversy, who are saying, just be careful. Be careful. There's a fine line between forgiveness and the failure to hold a person accountable for their actions. So as this incident and this story about forgiveness from the gospel have been washing over me this week, I've been thinking about a different but similar incident in the story of my family. Last October, I was in Palo Alto, California at my grandmother's funeral. She'd lived 101 years of a good, solid, productive life. At every Nakamura family gathering, we start off with hugs and pleasantries, and then we catch up on each other's work and children and argue politics a little bit. And we do what we came to do, have a family reunion, eat together, celebrate our grandmother. And then, almost always, the conversation turns to the defining event of our family history, the Japanese internment of World War II. Now that my grandmother is gone, there's only one family member who personally remembers the camps. That's my Uncle Bob. 
He turned 80 recently, but he was turning three years old, actually on Pearl Harbor Day in 1941, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. His father was out in the car picking up a birthday cake when he heard the news on the radio. And then just a few months later, the executive order was issued and his parents were told that they needed to bring whatever they could carry in two hands and get on a train bound for LA. Their three-year-old was one of those things that they could carry in two hands, and so they had about three suitcases between the two of them. And with that, spent the next three and a half years living in a barrack in the middle of the desert in Utah, behind a barbed wire fence. My grandmother was this notorious pat rack, and so 76 years after all those events, we're going through all her stuff and deep in the back closet, we found a box of things of newsletters from the camps, letters, pictures, stuff people had sent her, pages of the Sears catalog at that time. And interspersed with all those historical facts and clippings were dozens of doodles and drawings, pencils and crayons made by my uncle, who was three, four, five, six years old at that time. When he got a little bit older, he was drawing things that were actually decipherable. And you'd see that he drew the things that he saw. He drew the US flag, which was probably flying everywhere. He drew the Japanese flag. He drew a few things that were unfortunately, but undeniably swastikas. And then you'd see the fence, the barbed wire fence where he spent a lot of his early childhood. Several decades later, before I was born, Uncle Bob joined the army. He did a couple of tours in Vietnam. He met his beautiful wife while he was stationed in Europe and they got married. And then later on he became a math teacher. But our oldest cousin, Bob's oldest son, struggles with his father's military service. He usually says something like, gosh, and I just can't believe he risked his life to serve the country that imprisoned him. And I've noticed over the years that sometimes he says those words with rage and disbelief. And sometimes he says them with tears and love and admiration for the forgiveness that this man has exemplified in our family. And it's the tension between those two reactions that reminds me that forgiveness and reconciliation are never straightforward. We are hoping, right, that forgiveness is a sign of courage and strength but often we're suspicious that it's actually a sign of weakness and vulnerability. Which takes us back to this gospel lesson, and maybe even a little further back to the letter of Paul to Timothy that we read on page three of your bulletin. Paul says, remember, God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Forgiveness as the power of love and courage and self-discipline. I've never been imprisoned and I haven't spent any time really behind a barbed wire fence and no one in my family has been senselessly killed. But I've got a whole lot of little grudges 
and chips on my shoulder that maybe are a little more the size of the mustard seed and require some forgiveness and courage on my part. And I'm struck by Jesus' words, if only you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could forgive all those things. The implication being, and Katie, you don't. Your forgiveness dial is on about three quarters, right? Not even a one. And I'm asking you to turn it up to a 10, or maybe even an 11. What would it take for me or for you to let go of those past hurts, the fear that we carry on our shoulders, or shame? How often do I settle for letting my forgiveness amp remain on that one half or three quarters, letting things just continue to fester, thinking about them, enjoying the feeling of being indignant, or maybe even sometimes just forgetting without even going to the trouble of forgiving. How often am I tempted to see that kind of Christian forgiveness as a sign of weakness or suspect I'm really just being taken advantage of? How often do I just kind of enjoy being mad? I've been watching a TV show lately called Big Little Lies about the parents of a whole bunch of kindergartners, and one of the moms expresses something that I didn't want to admit to myself, but she says, you know, I love my grudges. I tend to them like pets. I do that too. I tend to them like pets. My forgiveness level is on about a three-quarter, a 75%. Maybe my Uncle Bob's is on a nine or a 10, and then you imagine Jesus on the cross, right? Turning it up to an 11. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. As we continue to think about this with our brothers and sisters throughout the country, this debate about what forgiveness is and what it isn't, I just want to read to you a Facebook post that one of my friends, who is an African-American pastor, put on his Facebook page recently. My friend is, because he's African-American and he's got a lot of activist friends, gets barraged by a lot of passion and opinions whenever a African-American person is killed senselessly, and he's got a whole lot of opinions about what we should be thinking on it. He posts something particularly helpful, so here it is, reflecting on the death of Botham Jean. To be forgiving and gracious looks like foolishness to the world. It is not contingent upon what we deem as just or fair, but it is an absolute necessity for our own well-being. That is, our mental and spiritual well-being. This should not undermine fervent protest, and it is not a judgment of righteous indignation. Those who know me know that I'm not adverse to expressing either. And this is also not a defense of oppressive forces that would seek to manipulate others by distorting a core tenet of Christianity with a counterfeit, cheap version of grace. But please, my brothers and sisters, stop attacking and ridiculing this young man who forgives. His pain and grief is enough already, isn't it? In some ways, if you think about it, it is the only way that we can take back control in a situation that has literally dead-ended. 
Forgiveness is a way toward healing for the one who's been met by one of life's many brick walls. I'm telling you what I know. Brothers and sisters at St. Stephen's, my prayer for us is the same one that Paul prayed for, for his friend and brother Timothy. God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline and the ability to turn that forgiveness and faith amp up from three quarters to at least a one. And he promises this, this, that a one is all it takes. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains, change the world, fill it with the good news of Jesus Christ, say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. And so let's pray for that love and grace and power to forgive as we have been forgiven, knowing that it takes just a little, and we have it within us. Amen.